Dotnet Rocks, episode 999, with guest Stephen Forte. Recorded Tuesday, June 10th, 2014. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks, one show away from show 1000. Yes, indeed. Can you feel it? I can feel it, because it's been coming for a while. I feel tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, doing three shows a week sort of accelerated our progress, too. This was supposed to happen in August. Yeah, it's true. We, we, we did have a big party planned, but we, we have something a little bit more special. Yeah, it'll be yeah, fun. It'll be fun. Next show. But uh, Mr. Forte is here. He'll be in in just a minute. And he really, really wanted show 999. And it's the uh, last show with where the first decimal and the file name is a zero. There you go. So let's roll the crazy music because I have something appropriate for today's topic. Awesome. All right, buddy. What do you got? Tinyurl.com slash Kirk2Enterprise. Oh, no. All right. So... There really aren't any real Star Trek communicators out there. Yeah. You know? And for obvious reasons. I mean, there's so many problems, and we'll talk about this with Forte. There's so many problems with the model of that communicator that Gene Roddenberry uh, has everybody wearing. First of all, it's so small. Where's the battery, right? Yeah. Second of all, it's not close to your mouth. So how do you understand people? Like, there's just a physics problem of, of getting a good sound. And you are talking about the next generation communicator, the one that was on the shirt, as opposed to the original series where it looked more like a cell phone. Yes, I'm talking about the next generation one, right? which was on the shirt. Not that I want to be too geeky about this. Because that's the cool one. I mean, the, the cell phone, yeah, we got cell phones, right? Right. Yeah. That was the, the 60s thing, which was interesting, and but that's already come true. And clearly inspired people to build it. Right. But if you ever go to a hospital or an emergency room, you'll see these people wearing these uh, communicator badges. So that's what this is. It's a company, Vocera, and they have this badge that's a lightweight, voice-controlled, wearable device that enables instant two-way or one-to-many conversations using commands. Wow. So voice commands, no no buttons or direct interface. Right. You wear it around your neck or in your pocket or whatever, and it's sort of like the badge that goes on your shirt, you know, in Star Trek. It's a little little bigger, of course. Yeah. Looks like a little micro cassette recorder. Well, the positioning's not that different from the shirt position because it's just a sort of down around your neck. Yep. That's and cool. I wonder if I got to have Forte chime in here. Do, is this one of the things that you were going to talk about or is this totally from left field? It's not completely out of left field, but it's not necessarily scope to the enterprise. So I'd say it's more from center field. All right, center field. But, you know, this is definitely something that uh, exists now. And like I say, if you go to a hospital, you'll see people using this kind of thing already. So I just wanted to find what's the closest thing I can find out there to a Star Trek communicator and why don't they really exist, you know? So, but this is pretty close. All right, there you go. Now, learn to love it. Richard, who's talking to us? 
grabbed a comment off of show 954, and that's the one we did with David McCarter when we were talking about rocking your technical interview, yeah. which generated a ton of comments. Between that one and the show we did with John Sonnes on leading your career, yeah. it sort of speaks to me that maybe we have to have more career conversations. Well, it's certainly timely, right? Absolutely. And Alex McGilvery has says exactly that. He says, this show came out at a great time for me. I had just finished school, and I'm moving into the, quote, real world. And a lot of tips came in very handy. Many seemed obvious in retrospect, but hindsight's always twenty twenty. I researched a company I applied to as well as came up with a set of questions relevant to the company and the position I was interviewing for. I believe that helped me profoundly. The people conducting the interview had great poker faces, but they seemed to really appreciate that I actually cared about the company and had questions about its processes. I felt really good about the interview, but even if I don't get the job, this was an amazing experience because it provided me with some valuable insight on what skills I needed to develop. And one thing I should point out, because I'm in the games and mobile area, is that the majority of the places I applied to told me that the reason they called me back for the interview was due to my past projects and portfolio and not my formal education in a technical college. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it just, you know, and you gotta think about the hirers too, you know, if we're on that side of things, like I like what you've done, right? Yep. Uh, perhaps this is specific to my domain or a statistical anomaly. No, I don't think it is. <laughs> but if it is the fact, the norm, then I'm really glad to hear that. I've always felt best to ask, what have you done rather than where did you go to school? Yeah. And thanks so much for all the insight. Alex, totally with you. Glad it worked out. And uh, heck, maybe I'm just biased here. I want to send you a mug just so you'll have to tell me how it actually came out. Did you get the job or not? Right. But uh, And I love that you felt more connected in the process, too, by knowing more about the company and having some questions to ask. So a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or in any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS, Android, and Windows 8. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app? Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And that brings us to our guest, Stephen Forte, who's been on this show historically many, many times, but his bio keeps changing. So I'm going to let him introduce himself. What the hell are you doing these days, Stephen? <laughs> well, good to see you guys again. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Steve Forte. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer of Teleric, developer tools company in the .NET and uh, cross-platform mobile space. And I've, as Carl said, you're right. My bio has changed. I've lived... I think in episode six, I might have been on. Something I like that. In city at the time. Then I moved to Hong Kong, and now I'm living in Silicon Valley. And the proud owner of a Tesla, aren't you? Oh, my God. Yes. I recently took possession of a Tesla Model S, and it is the greatest automobile I've ever driven in my life. And somebody started a, a club on Facebook or Twitter or somewhere that was the uh, a petition to allow them to let you drive their Tesla. What was that all about? Oh, yes, I had a I had a friend who is Serbian and somehow makes the connection that Nikola Tesla, who the corporation and the car is named after, mm -hmm. um, because Nikola Tesla was Serbian, that he has the right to drive my car. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know which Serbian this is. I do too, yeah. Well, you probably do. He's a mutual friend of all three of us. Yes. <laughs> and he's the kind of guy who pulled that one too. Sasha. Exactly. <laughs> I don't want to name names. But. I, so he, I let him sit in my Tesla and I drove him to um, dinner in my Tesla right down, you know, downtown Palo Alto. And you really didn't um, let him drive? And then he took a picture of himself behind the steering wheel. 
And I took that picture and put it on Facebook and said, oh, my God, a Serbian has stolen my Tesla. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't let him drive it? Well, I said, if you get a thousand likes to your Facebook page from people that are mutual friends of the two of us, which can't be that hard, I would let him go for a test drive. A thousand likes. Now I feel obligated to like that page. And I Uh just thought it was funny. You have to be mutual friends to both of us, so he can't just go get a thousand people who are random. So no, I am. We are. I am a mutual friend, so I feel obligated awesome. now. Whatever you do, don't um, announce the URL on this program. <laughs> I will not. <laughs> awesome. Well, so in the past, we've done all kinds of different shows with you, mostly talking about agile stuff. But it seems like the Silicon Valley has infected you. You're thinking differently now. I definitely am. I actually think it, it's probably the accumulation of the, this is my 20th year in the industry. I graduated university uh, probably exactly 20 years ago as of this recording. And being in the industry for 20 years has given me deep perspective. And now probably in the second half of my career, I just very recently moved to Silicon Valley. And it's a combination of age and changing of location. You know, first starting off in New York, then living in Asia as an expat for five years. And now coming in, I think in the early days of .NET Rocks, I talked a lot about data and I talked a lot about programming and then I moved into agile topics and even hardware topics. And you're absolutely right. I think um, Silicon Valley is a very unique place. It's a great place that every techie needs to at least come to as a tourist, if not for business, um, at least once in their life. Maybe like Muslims going to Mecca. So you've been uh, in the press a bit with uh, the wearable technology. This is your passion lately. What's uh, what's the state? Yeah, I've, I've noticed that in Silicon Valley, there are definitely, as a percentage of the population, far more Teslas on the road. For example, there's 22,000 Teslas sold so far. I think maybe 21,000 of them are in Palo Alto. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Then, if you walk around the Redmond campus at Microsoft, it is lousy with Tesla S's. Well, that, that's probably where the other thousand are. Um, <laughs> we saw them but, all over the place in Norway, too, in Oslo. Yep. Yeah, they put some superchargers in Europe, so they're expanding globally. And while Tesla's not a wearable, I think that the, of course, my statistics are wrong, but there definitely is a disproportionate amount of Teslas in Silicon Valley, um, mostly because the factory is here in Silicon Valley. They are assembled and built here in Silicon Valley in Fremont, um, about nine miles from my house, actually. But more importantly, just like with the Teslas, you see people driving Teslas wearing Google Glass. There's more people wear, using wearables uh, in Silicon Valley than everywhere else. So this is a definite early adopter place, which I think fits in well with my personality, being a fairly big early adopter myself. Now there was a, And I think that affected my, my view. There was a famous case in which somebody was, uh, a woman was given a ticket for wearing Google Glass while driving and beat the ticket. But, you know, that... It brings up a question, you know, is that distracted driving? She said that it wasn't on and they couldn't prove it was on. But, I mean, assuming that it is, I mean, if you're in a Tesla, do you sort of get a ticket to wear a Google Glass while you're driving? I mean, do you, are, are you, when a cop pulls you over, oh, you got a Tesla and a Google Glass? Yeah, you can wear that. I mean, what, what is the, what's the deal there? Because you're in a <laughs> Tesla, you're naturally distracted. <laughs> I think if you're in a Tesla and you're wearing Google Glass and the cop pulls you over, I think the cop says, hey, can I go for a ride? I think so, yeah. Nice. What does that thing do? What does that thing do? Where's the gas tank? 
But I, I, I think you're right. I think that Google Glass while driving is probably not appropriate. Um, yeah. Google Glass definitely has some social stigmatisms to them. People think they might be getting spied on, and there's all these reports in the media of people wearing them in restaurants and other customers feeling upset. But I think at the end of the day, it really just opens a broader conversation to wearables. Wearables are here. Google Glass potentially is not mainstream yet, but wearables are. Wearables, we're in the early generation. We're in kind of, you know, HTML 1.0 of wearables, right? We're in probably 1997 of wearables, right? I think it might be more acceptable if somebody had a little half-invisible camera on their hat because it's sort of, you know, hard to notice. And it doesn't look less, like it's your eye. It doesn't look like an extension to your eye. It doesn't look like you're a Cylon, you know? Right. But you actually are. And that, that by the way, could be completely uh, innocuous looking and entirely evil at the same time. I agree. And so, you know what I mean by evil. Just like it could be, you could be pulling in a lot of information about your environment. Yeah. There's definitely been a lot of apps that have some privacy concerns. I mean, nothing major that would probably involve lawyers and legal, but just people are are uncomfortable with wearables. But more importantly, I think it kind of opens up the conversation that in the early days of the internet, you know, I'm talking about 1995, 1996, and that's where we are with wearables. People were uncomfortable putting their credit card online and buying something at Amazon. Oh, sure. Um, now, people are very comfortable doing that and doing all sorts of crazy things on the internet from webcams to, you know. So I think that will happen with wearables as well. We literally are probably at the 1995, 1997 stage with wearables. So they're here. They're not going to go away. There's some pushback. But I've always said you can look at the future of things like wearables by looking at the history of the web, right? You can just look at how adoption went and the, and the adoption curve. And I think that's where we are. So you know, I, porn's got to play a big role then. <laughs> well, I, I believe there was a um, article, which since you went there, Richard, there was, <laughs> there was an interesting article in Venture Beat or somewhere that talked about, it's not necessarily a porn app, but it's, a, it's an app for Google Glass, since we were mentioning Google Glass, and it will help an individual, typically a male, um, with pickup lines when he's at a bar, and it will scan the, the people and try to do facial recognition and look up their photo on Facebook and try to get information about them or just guess judging by things like that. So, so yes, I think the dating industry and the porn industry and all those industries will play a role in the wearables just as well as traditional mainstream business will as well. That is pretty creepy. It it is very creepy. And here's the funny thing about it. The people who created the app said how to do this and not be creepy. The fact that they had to put that disclaimer in the title tells you that it's probably a little creepy. These things have a way of working themselves out, though. I mean, at the end of the day, somebody you want to have a conversation with is is not going to be wearing anything. Do you know what I mean? And the ultimate test of your character is going to be you in a room with no devices. You know what I'm saying? And so, therefore, you know, if you have to have a device... You're handicapped, essentially. You know, you you have you have a crutch. You have something you can lean on, whether it's for a conversation or whether it's for, you know, something of you know. If you're the smartest one at the table, yeah, but you're wearing a device. You're looking stuff up, right? But I mean, the device is a tricky path. What if it was just a pair of glasses? 
I'm not allowed to see because I have this handicap of not being able to focus my eyes. Right. So that begs the question, are you, do, do you have a device and you're trying to pull, come off as someone who is uh, faking it, right? But I don't know if that's the case. You're, you're going down a negative path, which is, which could, which maybe society will yeah, go that, down that That's path. my job. I mean, I have plenty, yeah. I, I have plenty of positive, <laughs> out, uh, things to talk about as well. But, you know, let's, well, let's talk to, about the fearful kind of, things first. Well, yeah, to counter your point a little bit. And I, as I said, I don't have the answers, but I think how our conversations in regular day, daily life have changed since the adoption of smartphones. Yeah. For right. example, is I'm, I'm always in conversations with Richard. And Richard does know a lot of things. And a lot of times I'll try to call BS on him and Google it right there <laughs> sitting at the table. Yeah. And sometimes I'm right and I feel really, really triumphant. And sometimes I get really pissed because Richard did really know that crazy minute detail that I didn't think anyone knew. Yeah, so you know, think, um, you're right. Richard the is the, he's the guy who we have to compare, you know, imagine sitting in a conversation with Richard. And if you could keep up with him without a device, then... Yeah, that's well, some the of us test need of your Google character. Glass just to keep up with Richard. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> My nickname for him is Richipedia. Richardpedia.com. I've got it registered. Oh, we should register nice. that URL. I have it. Richardpedia.com. Uh anyway, I digress. All right. So, but in and you know, I don't I do want to talk about the positive things, but just, you know, it, here's the thing, like it's come out of late that, you know, um, the internet is not as secure as we thought it was. And the d- adoption of the internet was slow because people didn't trust it. Okay. It turns out they had a good reason not to trust it. But, you know, as they got more comfortable with it, people began using it and relying on it. And those were good things that came of that. However, you know, uh, it's been exploited and it's been exploited badly. And here we are. Now we're uh, on the verge of this new, uh, new world of wearables and devices where information is everywhere, and uh, people are rightly afraid of it. So, so there you go. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that uh, we should all uh, shy away from progress because I'm not that person. I'm just saying that there's the reason why people are afraid of it. There's a big reason. Now, getting back to uh, what what's great about it. And, and why I think it, it's going to, this, this wearable revolution is going to be a great thing is because you can see there, it basically comes down to your character. I mean, it, it, there's a difference between a person who is, uh, you know, using it to exploit another person and somebody who uses it to make the world a better place. And that comes down to who the person is, right? It doesn't come down to the technology. It's the use of that technology that matters. And that's correct. That's really what we're talking about here. So I yeah, hope I you're right. I hope you're right. I hope that we do get more comfortable with wearable technology and in general just being in living in this state that is a you know for more or less it's a surveillance state whether we're being spied on by our government or by our fellow man it's a surveillance state and we, we need to get more comfortable living in it. But I argue that the government has been um, reading our mails since the Pony Express. Probably right. And so people have been fearful of every new technology adoption, just like they will be fearful with um, wearables. And eventually people will get a comfort level to it. Will there be exploits and problems? Of course there will be. But sure. 
most most likely this will push to greater adoption and work for the greater good. So that's a challenge to us as developers because literally people, we are the ones who are going to change the world and make it a better place. You're, you, what you do with this, it makes our world. And that is a really important responsibility for us to have. So what about Google Glass in the enterprise? Do you have some scenarios? I think it's still um, a bit of a challenge to come up with a specific scenario in the enterprise, but I do think that they are there. And the reason why I say it's a bit of a challenge because it seems that these very narrow markets Google Glass is very helpful for, like in the operating room or in medical right. in medical environments. We're not quite there yet in the enterprise because you typically have inf- information right at your fingertips with a variety of different ways, whether it's your touchscreen, whether it's your phone, whether it's an iPad. So I think that the Google Glass in the enterprise, unless for a very narrow market where you don't have access to those environments, um, those, those use cases aren't quite there yet. And I think that's okay. I think Google created Google Glass more as an experiment and s- to see what people are doing it, both developers building apps for it and then ultimately us wearing it and using those apps. You know, I keep thinking about Google Glass in a retail environment. Don't you want the guy behind the counter, if you've been a past customer, to know your name and know your order and like save you time? Like what if every time you walked into a Starbucks, person comes up and goes, hey, Richard, you want the usual? And it's not just that they have an epic memory for it. It's that the, the tool's helping them. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I love the little local Thai restaurant down the block from my office where the, you know, the um, waitress always remembers my order. It, it just makes me feel special, but it also saves me time. I mean, you really need to look at the menu. And I think if you can facilitate that better with wearable technology, Google Glass or something else, I think that would make um, a great case. I, I was mentoring a team down in Mountain View. I'm sorry, a, um, a startup down in Mountain View that is taking Google Glass and putting it in retail environments for the customer. So when you walk in the store, you can put a Google Glass on and it augments the shopping experience. So there's definitely um, these micro and niche examples of where it's going to be quite useful. It's very cool. So what do you think, um, what's what's next for Google Glass? I mean, they, they've sort of been in hiding, but they've been promised uh, new versions and newer, greater things had some problems with battery and just, you know, version one functionality wasn't all that great, but what's, what do you, what do you see coming up? I, I think Google glass will have to wait for its killer app. And I think that's going to be up to the developer community. So in essence, what will happen is a developer will start using Google glass in ways Google never envisioned and that will actually evolve not just the ecosystem, but it will evolve the hardware and the product itself. And it's literally going to be up to all of us and our you know, listeners and the entire developer ecosystem to do that. And they will push Google in that direction. And so I think there's a lot of obvious small fixes that need to happen with Google Glass. Where, mm-hmm. you know, for example, you mentioned battery, things like that. Those hardware iterations will come over the next you know, anywhere between 6 and 18 months. But ultimately, it will be a niche, fun product um, only until develop, the developer community comes up with those killer apps. And there's there's some pretty cool apps that could work. I mean, there are Google Glass that um, you point the glass towards 
foreign languages and it translates it for you. And I can see that really great oh, in the yeah. tourism industry. So there are definitely developers out there and someone will come up with that key, you know, basically that, that key value right there. Mm. The real-time translation thing is really cool. The past couple of weeks when I was traveling in Germany, I was in the parts of Germany that don't speak any English at all. And so I would only get German um, menus. And the fact that I could hold I, I both the, I have a Nexus 4 and a Windows phone, and they both have a translation app, and I could hold it up and it would translate the menu items. Exactly. And, and more often than not, they, they, the server would stand over my shoulder and be amazed that that actually <laughs> worked. Glass would actually be more convenient for that than having to juggle the phone. Mm. Right, especially for areas where you need to be hands-free. Not necessarily driving, because that brings up other potential issues, but walking down the street, street signs, or in a lecture, or other things. It could be very w- much more useful. The distracted driving one bothers me just because I would think if you're using glass for navigation, that is less distracting than using the normal GPS for, for navigation because it's in your line. It's outside of your line of sight. You are still looking out the windshield. Like that's to me seems pretty safe. Yeah. I, I tend to agree. And my best experience with Google Glass ever was on the train system in London where it literally was giving me turn-by-turn directions walking around the train station. And it was right on because it knew which way my I was looking as well as my GPS location. Oh, exactly, because it has situational awareness. That's the key. Yeah, control over that orientation. But it's still not really an enterprise app. I guess once you get to an office setting, that mobility, you know, anywhere you wouldn't use your phone is kind of like a place you're not going to really need uh, a Google Glass. I, I tend to agree. And I think inside the enterprise, while Google Glass probably will have a role, I think other wearables will start finding their way in. And, you know, great example, I'm sitting here in my office and I have a Fitbit in my pocket. That's right. a wearable. Now, granted, that's probably got very little enterprise applications, but I think we're at the bring your own device stage where people who are using these, you know, you know, we all know what bring your own devices, right? That's sure. when workers started in mass, say, bringing their iPads and cell phones and everything else into the office. I think pretty soon in a couple of years, we're going to have the bring your own wearable problem or issue in the enterprise and Google Glass being one of many. And, you know, it's going to be potentially, if it's not going to be a problem, it's going to be something that needs to be addressed at the enterprise level for sure. You know, it may not be as applicable in the U.S., but one of the things I could see with a Fitbit is it knows how far or how often you're moving. So when you get – I've been dealing with some organizations that have pretty strict health rules. You can't sit at a desk too long. You can't walk them too far. Like guys working in a warehouse, it's like you're only allowed to do five miles a day. Mm. Like more than that, and and you risk some injury. So being able to monitor how little people are moving or how much people are moving is actually useful. So start, so start thinking about taking a wearable into the enterprise and starting putting wearables on your employees, replacing the key card, for example, with a wearable yep. that also counts your steps or a wearable that you might put on that, you know, tracks other types of your, your functions. And you could start to see a pretty compelling picture to those enterprises. It's, it solves a problem. Yeah, the constant communication piece like uh, Carl brought up with the Vocera badge, just being able to contact anybody in an organization or know where they are. And, you know, let's, I mean, our cell phones do that, but cell phones are such a 
jack of all trades instrument now that they do so much more. Getting to the phone on a cell phone sometimes is too much to you know you you want it instant you need it instant i mean that's why doctors in hospitals need something that can just tap on their badge and you're talking right i i think you're right and i think what will be interesting about the wearables is there are definitely things where it's going to be situationally aware that maybe your mobile phone does not have or it will tell you more information than a mobile phone will have because of, because of the fact that it is a wearable. I can tell, you know, there's one wearable company I was mentoring that tell, talks about your alert level, which would be great for drivers of trucks and things like that. So there just may be situations where the wearable is more aware of both your physical and mental surroundings and then relays that information out so you can maybe automatically put yourself into a way mode and things like that. Or if you're, yeah. it knows you're out to lunch because you've stepped out of the building or whatever it is, right? There's tremendous amount of um, information that can be passed back. Mm. The problem of course is will the employees go for it, right? There'll be the, con- the convenience of the, um, the convenience of the key card replacement, but they may feel like they're being spied upon or trading too much of their privacy, you know, during the workday. Somebody yep. told me a story while we were at NDC about taking apart an RFID tag from an octopus card, you know, the one for transit, mm-hmm. and he put it at the end of a wand so that when he walked up to the gate to get on the subway, rather than swiping the card, he cast a spell and pointed the wand at the sensor, and that tripped the RFID tag and the thing opened. That's People awesome. love that. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty cool, but it also shows you that some of the stuff is hackable, both in good ways and bad ways. Hmm. I don't think the RFID guys who came up with that probably considered that a use case, you know, when they first were sitting down figuring it out. Well, they're still being paid, right? He's still got a load and so forth. It's just that instead of the tag being in a card, it's stuck at the end of a stick. Right. (laughs) Which I think is pretty brilliant. And that's an example of a good hack, right? Where you're taking this existing RFID technology and you're making it either more useful or more convenient, right? There's also potential bad hacks as well, which goes against maybe what we were originally intending some of these devices to do. Well, I think that's generally the problem when you talk about bring your own device anywhere, that you always have to deal with what is that person doing that device? Like when I put on my enterprise IT hat, I don't like bring your own device. I like a controlled set of devices that I hand to you. Yeah, and my company recently instituted a policy which is, you know, no different than any other company our size where they said, if you're going to access corporate resources on your phone, you're going to give us permission to remotely wipe your phone if your phone is stolen or lost and, and things like that, which is, which is absolutely critical, but also a little creepy. I don't want, you know, it's my phone. I paid for it. I don't want right. my IT department wiping out the photos I took. Or then I start thinking, can they see the photos I took? Right. I, you know, maybe right. I, you know, maybe I took some private photos like that. I don't, I don't want in a work environment, right? I was at a party or something, whatever. Right? Mm. So it definitely begs that question of what is the right balance between the privacy and the employee's, you know, use of the device versus the, you know, the, the corporation's, you know, productivity they get. And some companies have a solution. Like, so right now I carry two cell phones and, um, you know, one is my personal phone and one I use only for work. But I bought both, right? The company can provide one for me. Some companies will provide you a BlackBerry or some other form of um, work phone as also a smartphone. And then people buy, you know, their own personal one as well. 
And maybe that's the solution. I don't. So what I have two Fitbits, you know, one that I wear, as you said, the guy can't walk more than five miles within my personal one that I, you know, change out of in the locker room after, you know, after my day at work. I don't know. Yeah, that gets really interesting when it comes to shared data. Yeah, and, and then what happens with this data, right? I mean, is it, you know, I mean, I, I, we've always had this question. I mean, it's whenever you, when you, we, when you put phones on workers' desks in the 1950s, you know, the yeah. first question was the workers kept saying, they're going to listen to my phone conversations, and the, empl- and the employers kept saying, you know, they're going to make personal calls. And guess what? Both happened, right? And we yeah. all have made a personal phone call with our work phone. It's just the same thing with your internet and your computer at work. Of course, I sent a personal email on my Gmail account for my work computer at some point during the day, or I take a break and look at Facebook. I mean, it's just, it's just part of the game. So that same logic will carry forward with wearables. And I guess it's going to be one of those, every corporation has to strike that healthy balance with their employees. What are some of the devices that you've seen other than Google Glass that you're excited about out there in Silicon Valley? You can talk about it anyway. Sure. Um, there, there's one that I've seen that is pretty cool that will track the um, person's alertness. I think I mentioned. Yeah, just you mentioned to, that. Yeah. Yeah. Just to um, not too long ago, and what I find interesting about that is I think it has great enterprise applications. Um, not necessarily for making sure your employees are awake. But I think Richard mentioned a moment ago about the, um, I think in Norway or somewhere, Richard said that they have rules about how long people can be at their desks or how long, how far they can walk and things like that. Well, this would be a great thing if you wear it. Let's say you're in a call center and everyone's wearing this alertless, you know, this, this device that tracks it. What it does is it does it by tracking your eye movements. And it has an algorithm that sees how tired and sleepy you are. Right. And you can even set it to give you a little bit of a jolt, which I find a little creepy. But in essence, it will give an alert. Well, what if everyone in the call center was wearing one? You know, staring at a screen, talking to customer service people over hours uh, can be pretty, you know, pretty daunting. And I think if you have a call center of a thousand people and they're all wearing this type of a device, it could actually change the game because maybe instead of having a break every three hours, and have a 30 minute break, maybe you have a 10 minute break every one hour or every 40 minutes. Like, well, I don't know what the answer is, but you can find that much faster and it'll be far more accurate because it's just data as opposed to using, you know, rules that have been set aside for the last hundreds of years. We take breaks every two or three hours because, you know, that's what we've been doing for generations. And there were probably old school reasons for doing that. But now we can actually do it based on the data or maybe every employee has different breaks in those situations based upon, you know, based upon their alertness because you don't want tired, cranky people talking to your customers. Yeah, you, you almost wonder, again, pushing right against the creepiness factor. If I'm instrumenting someone's body enough that I know how alert they are, how interested they are, and then I can also time that with the work they're doing so that I, you could actually see that regular breaks and regular moving downs increases productivity, actually makes better work. Yeah, absolutely right. And, um, I just to continue on that theme is someone said sitting is the new smoking. Meaning yeah, yeah, right. Is, right. Everyone's sitting down and it's killing us. I'm actually standing at a standing desk, which is great. I feel much healthier and I'm lucky. I mean, not everyone has a standing desk. And, uh, one, one company I saw here in Silicon Valley making a, they're actually based out of Asia, but now they've been here raising money. And I bumped into them at Maker Fair a couple weeks back and they make a cushion for your chair that this is the best part. 
It um, gets your blood pressure and your, and your, more importantly, your breathing rate and all those algorithms um, from sitting, which I find cool that they're able to get your heart rate and your breathing rate through your butt, right? Because you're sitting on it. And it tells you when your alertness and, you know, very similar to the one I just described that uses your eye. So this tells you your, you know, hey, your posture is off and all of this. So imagine every worker in, in, mm. in sitting at a desk having one of these chairs and then, you know, being pinged once every hour. Hey, you need to go get some water or hey, you know, your posture is way off. You should kind of sit up straight or, you know, you need to take a quick break to relax. Um, it could drastically increase productivity. But in addition to that, it could actually make people much healthier. You know, in general, wearables for health reasons are good. And the with the Fitbit and stuff, it, that's just scratching the surface. I mean, we're talking, think about Scott Hansman, you know, with diabetes, and he's got two devices. He's got an insulin pump and he's got a blood sugar reader. Pump. And, you know, those are those are sort of like the epitome of wearable devices. But, I mean, even if you're not uh, uh, someone with a serious medical condition like that, monitoring monitoring your physical condition and telling you when it's time to do something different uh otherwise you're impairing yourself is is kind of takes the burden off of you to 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 know when it is that you need to do something for yourself doesn't it i i, I mean i think i think you're right because a lot of times we will sit and push our limits and not realize that by sitting down for so long, or if it's a medical device being without the insulin or whatever it is, by doing things for such a long period of time, you realize you become less productive over that time. And we might as well learn from the data as opposed to just saying, Oh, I think maybe I'll take a break in two hours. Wouldn't it be better if an algorithm told you, no, 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 it's probably better if you took a break in an hour and a half. You're right. still going to take the break. You might as well take the break and be more, you know, have it be more useful. Take the break at the right time. Yeah. For the right length. I mean, there's a reason why employers give us vacation time, right? So, it's, and it's the reason why employers give us break and lunch hour. So we might as well use all that time, but use it more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And by instrumenting the body, so to speak, or instrumenting the workforce, you have that ability to figure it out based on data and potentially customize it for each employee. Yeah, the craziest uh, medical monitor device I've seen so far is a thing called Scando. And uh, it's at scando.com. I'm, I'm actually, I was on in the Indiegogo campaign for this, so I'm on the testing list for it. But this thing, it's not just uh, heart rate even, but blood pressure, current temperature, ECG data, oxygen levels in your blood. You know, it, it really is able to calculate stress for you pretty accurately. And it can do that without actually going inside your body? You can do that from outside? Yes, you press it to your forehead. Wow. It's actually a really neat device. I got to play with it recently. Um, they're based over in Mountain View. And I, I have to say, I envy them because they are in a, they, their office is on a NASA base in, on Moffett Field, um, Ames Research Center in Mountain View, California, right in the center of Silicon Valley. And, um, I was touring that facility recently and got this, you know, put the thing to my head and it's working great. They're, they're kind of stuck right now in FDA approval. Yeah, um, which has delayed them substantially. The hardware, the software is all ready to go, but they're just they're just playing it safe by um you know they're 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 just playing it safe by making sure all the the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. They don't want something like twenty three and Me to happen to them, which was a scenario where a company got a little ahead of themselves and didn't get FDA approval and then kind of got shut down for a while before yeah. they 
went out to get the FDA approval. Can you uh, spell it for me, Richard? It's 23 it's, and me. No, no, Scanda or whatever. The- yeah, Scanadu. Oh, Scanadu. S C A N A D U. And there, like I said, I'm, I'm on the FDA approval program, so I'm part of the tests. And, uh, but yeah, it just, it's, there's an interesting line here, right? I'm also looking at the emotive headset this way too. God, right? And now the motive. Oh my God. It's going to be December before we get one of those. Oh, sure. You know, had one by now. Technologies get delayed. That's inevitable. Arr. But, you know, especially for stuff like what we're doing as, as software developers, that whole, I'm thinking back to, you know, the whole conversation we've had about getting into the zone. Like, what if I could have a tool that would instrument me to know I'm in the zone and could actually modify my environment, can encourage me to be in that, that mental space to, uh, to be highly productive? Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, we are trying, we've been spending, especially developers, we have been spending so much time hacking our life, hacking our, our surroundings. As I said, there's standing desks, there's, you know, forget about the amount of time we spend hacking systems, right? Trying to make things more efficient. Well, now we're starting to turn our attention to biohacking. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you another one. This is slightly, um, this is slightly off to the center of what we're talking about, but it's the same thing is there was a startup here in Silicon Valley that they were working really, really hard. And they said it was too inefficient to go out and eat. So they created the, basically the goo from the matrix, right? The oh, soylent. So, okay. You guys know about it. Soylent. Yeah. Yeah. So I bought, I bought, I bought a week supply. We'll, we'll see what happens. I bought some. Yeah. But I like the, uh, if you ever heard the guy being interviewed, he says he's a developer and eating is an, is an annoyance. It's a distraction exactly. and he doesn't find enjoyment from eating food. He just finds it as a, is it it's an annoyance and talk about somebody who lives in their brain man just <laughs> exactly you know this body is just an annoyance thing to to move my head around from place to place <laughs> that's really all i need it for and so once in a while it needs food and uh yeah yeah i'm not someone who th- i'm thinking soylent all the time because i am big on the social elements of food yeah but you know what, what appeals to me on soylent is this idea that i am busy i am on the run and i don't want to eat junk so here's a nutritionally complete drink that will replace a meal on demand. Yeah. Just mix with water and go. Exactly. Yeah, it is. And when, when you want that, you want it. Right. Yeah. You don't, I don't, I don't want to use it all the time. It's not my, you know, my new food, but once in a while, when you need it, it's, it's a good, it's, you know, a good solution. Right. It won't, re- it won't replace your meals, but it will replace, it won't replace all your meals, but it'll replace some of your meals. I got to think that the biggest technology space for wearables in the future has got to be real augmented reality. And I don't put Google Glass in that category because they're not in line of sight. That Right. So you're talking more like Oculus Rift? But Oculus Rift is full visual replacement. You don't see through it. What I really want is additional data added to my vision. I see what you're saying. So you're looking – I actually think there's going to be a bit of a merger – between longer term, the augmented reality space and the virtual reality space. That's why I mentioned Oculus Rift. But you are you are correct. I think that some form of augmented reality will become mainstream soon, and it will have great implications both socially and for the consumer, as well as for the you know standard you know developer in the enterprise. Because 
I think at some point, whether it's a glass or whether it's some kind of a projection, you're going to get a lot of augmented augmented information to whatever is going on in your situational awareness. And Google Glass is the first stab at that. And it's, as I said, maybe it's like black and white TV or, or something like that. Yeah, I think it was a really interesting decision by Google to put the screen out of your line of sight. I mean, it's sort of an admission that we can't integrate with the reality around you in real time. So we're just going to put additional data on. I mean, then the classic example of this is just being able to point to someone as you're looking at them and have a, there's their name and their kids' names and, you know, that sort of thing, um, which technologically seems possible, just hard. Right. And I would assume if it was not hard and something they could figure out that they would have done that. And, you know, again, I think I view Google Glass as a big experiment. And if it's going to take off, I think it will evolve in that direction. Which yeah. now opens up tremendous amount of opportunities for the developer. Yeah, huge, sure does. huge software opportunity, without a doubt. Absolutely. That's the interesting thing of all this. We're talking about wearables. But what I like about wearables is that at the end of the day, the wearable is just a conduit for more software. Right. So all the, all these wearables create tremendous opportunity for the developers. And I actually think developers will have to, while they're not going to have to probably worry about, you know, PCB boards and circuitry and things like that. I think, you know, connecting into these systems, getting the data, you know, aggregating the data are just going to open up a wealth of new opportunities for developers, you know, moving forward. Yeah. I'm just trying to put all those bits together. Again, it's like the, any place I don't want to use a phone. It's probably a place I'm not all that interested in wearables yet. I mean, guys working out in the field, moving or in the warehouse and so forth, they're the ones who seem to benefit most from this. It's in the in the office, in the cubicle, that seems less relevant. To, to some extent. Um, you might be in the cubicle, but remember that I think there's just different types of wearables. There's the alertness wearable I talked about or the chair, right? The, you know, the chair where you sit in and it reads your heart rate. Yeah. But I actually think some augmented reality might make sense for the for the you know the knowledge worker, the information worker in the cubicle. I think that um, there definitely are applications for them, even looking at a computer screen most of the day. Right? If you're on a conference call, that's not a video call. Maybe that wearable is easier than looking at a screen, or maybe you know in-person meetings in the office. I'm not sure exactly. I almost wonder if you'd eliminate screens once you had a pair of glasses that you could add data to all the time? Wouldn't you just look at a blank wall and have the screen painted on it? I, I think for a lot of knowledge workers that don't necessarily need to create a lot of content, uh, what you described is exactly correct. And I come back to the call center operator. A call center operator may not need a screen if they're just doing certain things. They may they'd be able to do it straight from that wearable itself. The screen is projected. Any inputs they do are kind of projected as well. And, you know, they use the gestures to say, you know, accept or reject and things like that. So I think you're right. I think a lot of the screens will potentially go away and be part of the wearable or projected or both. You have to wonder, you know, like the Oculus is an interesting example of this. I want to see someone wearing an Oculus on a plane watching a movie. Hmm. You know, well, it'll be- I, think, I think Oculus is watch for a half an a hour little- and that's it. Yeah. And I I don't think we're going to walk into an office and instead of seeing a hundred people in a cube typing on computers, that we're going to see a hundred people sitting at a chair, sitting on a chair with an Oculus Rift. Um, but I do think you will see, um, 
people slowly augmenting, you know, augmenting that, you know, they're in the cubicles and they're augmenting that experience with other forms of that technology. Some, some derivative of glass and some derivative of maybe Oculus as well, but not necessarily what the two look like today. <laughs> a group of people wearing Oculus being basically VR'd into uh, a, a board table, you know, a big table with chairs all the way around it and people could be anywhere. And you, but you could still look around. Like they should look right. Yeah, and you can start eliminating the um, the office in general, and a lot more people can work out of home or, or in remote locations and things like that. We've been getting better and better at that over time in the years, but this would really take that to the next level. Well, the challenge there is not you being able to see in the room, but you being in the room. So how do I video you wearing this thing on your face? And then, you know, create your avatar so you don't wear the thing on your face and still ca- make you move right, talk right, appear like you're actually there. Right. Well, I, I like to call into conference calls, you know, at home sitting in my underwear or sweatpants. I guess in this scenario, I'd have to have my avatar wear like a suit and tie or some other type of thing. Definitely going to be an avatar. The, tri- the trick is going to be getting facial articulation captured, you know, a la Avatar, literally the movie. So that you look correct. And, and that would be the holy grail for this to work. Because, and that would be the killer app. Because so many times, you know, we all say email is a horrible form of communication. How many arguments have you had with people over email because they misinterpreted your intent or they misinterpreted right. your tone? And that's why I litter my emails with emoticons, right? Like I'm a 12-year-old teenager, right? Or a 12-year-old girl or something. And um, even in very professional environments, I'll make sure I throw one in so people understand my intent. Mm-hmm. And video conferencing is still not there. And yeah, I guess if you have everyone on the video conference, you can see the facial expressions, but there's too many to look at. And I think in this particular example, it's a much more fluid experience where if you can capture those facial and body expressions properly, it would actually make, it, it would eliminate one of the key problems of remote workers and phone in and things like that. So let's talk about uh platforms because obviously i mean uh all of these wearable devices aren't going to exist you know with .net you know c sharp clr anytime soon so um you think it's a really good idea to for people to learn or to at least get their hands on some android technology whether even if that's xamarin I'll say two things on that. The first is I'm going to just stress the .NET question yep. is the result of all of the wearables data is going to be done in traditional databases. Maybe the, maybe be a little bit more of a big data play. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a tremendous uh, opportunity for your standard .NET application to start integrating with this type of data. So I think that for the the data itself, there's not going to be much of a difference. So I think that's the, the first piece. The second piece is actually programming the wearables themselves and getting your hand on Android technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I do feel that Android will probably be one of the early, um, what's the right word? One of the early innovators in that wearable space. But again, I kind of look at the history. I, I think the future is the platform won't be Android or iOS. Those were platforms deliberately built for phones and they show it and they showed it when they moved to tablets. Yeah. And, you know, the joke was the iPad was a big iPhone and the, and the first and even second generation of Android tablets were pretty horrible because they mm-hmm. were, again, big phones. And even the current Android tablets aren't that good. iOS 
um, has gotten a lot better on the on the tablet. So just like we had Windows trying to squeeze its way down, and we realized that didn't work, and then we got iOS and Android. I don't think that um, iOS and Android are going to be able to squeeze their way down into the wearables as much as they think they can. And I okay. know you see the, the the Android Wear and iOS. There's the rumor of the of the watch, which may or may not be announced. You know, even before this airs. But I mean, you know, so Android's in a good Android's in at least a good place because it is open, you know, and malleable and uh, mutable to different well, forms, right? Well, let's face it, Android's really just Linux, right? Right. I mean, it's a, it's a scaled down, stripped down specific version of Linux. So it is possible. You are correct that Android can be, you know, stripped down and rejiggered for wearables for embedded systems. But I look at things like the Arduino, which is yeah it's a circuit board but that's probably where if you're really a developer and you're starting to think about i want to code for the embedded systems go get yourself an arduino and start hacking on that you can teach yourself you know how to you know the hello world is basically blinking a light yeah um but you can teach yourself how to use an arduino in a matter of a week or two there's you know dummies books and there's everything from dummies books to professional courses on, on using it and that's probably a little better to prepare you for what's coming in the future because um, I just don't think the paradigm that we have today in our programming environment, whether it's .NET or even Android, will necessarily translate it, its way down to these tiny little devices with you know virtually no memory and you know very little different type of interrupt systems. So you think these things will have to be written um, with something else? My assumption is yes. That just like the earliest versions of um, mobile devices were running more or less, um, you know, versions of .NET and Java, right? Had to be kind of stripped down. And then mm -hmm. eventually we got down to far more very specific systems themselves. Right. I think the same thing will happen with the wearables where your first batch of wearables, like the Android Wear and potentially Apple Watch or Pebble, things like that, mm -hmm. will be done with things, you know, with Android and iOS. Mm -hmm. But I think ultimately the future will be something different. Okay. And yeah, it looks like C++ is still a dominant language for a lot of this stuff, for better or well, worse. The Oculus Rift is all C++. It's, it's actually C, not C++. And I might have mentioned this on the last time I was on. I don't, I don't think I did. Is I recently started playing with an Arduino, and I had to write some C code. And it was, I was actually a little afraid because I haven't written C code since like the late 80s in high school. And I skipped the 90s and I skipped the zeros, but yet I started playing with C code again. And um, I think you're right, Richard. I think some of these older, you know, lower level languages are going to come back into play, which is pretty cool, I, I think. I think it's, um, you know, some of the old skills we've all learned in school will come back and be handy. Yeah. Interesting, huh? It's, it is. It's going to be a brave new world out there where everyone's got um, things like Fitbits and Google Glass or whatever these derivatives are into the future. Um, you can also see professional athletes starting to really embrace this technology. I, I, um, I was mentoring a startup that takes Fitbit to the extreme where you place sensor or not sensor. Yeah. You place sensors at about 20 different spots in the body and you can do things like test your golf swing and it measures all of your, you know, all of your micro movements and the arc of your movements and the degree angle that you use and then compare that to professional golfers. So saying, I'm trying to make this swing. I, I need to be like Sergio Garcia and you know, hit the ball in this particular way. Mm. You can pull up on the computer Sergio Garcia's 
swing in that scenario and then compare your swing to that and say, oh, I was 22 degrees off on my left shoulder. Right? And then right. a coach can come and, and do that. I've also recently um, worked with a team, a company, a startup that is putting a sensor on the tennis racket and really doing the same thing, right? where it's using the tennis racket and calculating the speed, the velocity, and, and gives you all this real-time data where the coach can come and make adjustments for you more or less in real time. You know, as you're practicing, as you're in a match. So I think the, um, the world is definitely going to change. It's going to be much more data driven, which again opens up, you know, I'm a data guy, right? As I said, sure. I think my first, I think my first DNR experience was in episode six or seven or whatever it was. And I think Carl had me talking about the data grid. Absolutely. So I've always been interested in data. And, um, so I actually think just the amount of data we're going to get back. And the programming opportunities and the things we can do with that data are just going to be enormous. So it's a, it's a whole new world for, for developers, and it's going to be awesome. All right, man. It's great to talk to you, and this is a great topic. We'll keep it going on subsequent shows and over beers and pizzas. Awesome. Can I be on show 1999? <laughs> I hope you don't wait that long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just reser- I'm just reserving that in advance. <laughs> it's all yours. All right. Awesome. Thanks again, Steve. No problem. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter bands by the FCC.